0: Turn over our notebooks and we're going to go over the Wellspring Disciplines. Well, the Wellspring purpose, as we all know, is to equip and encourage the women at Grace Bible to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ through the Word of God so that they may live out the gospel and thus strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. And I just want to thank the Lord this morning for laying upon the hearts of our pastors to shepherd us well in this way. We are very blessed ladies to be cared for so deeply. And thanks be to God for preparing and equipping Jamie and Chris and Sarah to feed us richly with all that we have been given through Wellspring. And this is a great privilege, gals, that we have been giving, given and that you are faithfully pursuing. So thanks for being here. God is equipping and encouraging each of us to grow deeper in our understanding of the need of our hearts to be shepherded. Without this understanding of the condition of our heart, we will see no need for the only one who can save us and redeem us and purify us from all unrighteousness. We are seeing the means of grace which God has given us in his word and the purpose he has for us to live out the gospel and to strengthen the church in its gospel purpose. Wellspring has been another wonderful means of God's grace to learn about the mixed condition of a believer's heart. As women who follow Christ, the penalty for sin has been paid for, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin still remains in our hearts and must be battled continually. As I see all that the Father has done in sending Christ to die in my place, I deepen in my awareness of his amazing grace toward me and the constant need I have of Christ. Through the word, as I battle that remaining sin. So, we're going to move on quickly to discipline one, the heart. And we start with the heart because we know from 423, our theme verse, Proverbs 423, that it's the wellspring of our life. It's the core of all that we are, the seat of our emotions and personality. And it's the heart that affects everything we do and say. There is nothing the heart does not affect, as Jacob shared with us last week. We must learn to be aware of our hearts. What is my heart desiring at this moment? Whose kingdom am I proving to be concerned about? Mine or the Lord's kingdom? Why did I just respond that way? What are my affections set upon at this moment? It's so very important. Life-sustaining important to stay near to God through his word. As I am diligent to bring my heart to God, He reveals to me His holiness, His kindness, His magnificence, His mercy, His love, and my own sinfulness in relation to that. What a great mercy this is to us in allowing us to see our sin, to see my heart. It humbles me so that I depend more on Him. I recognize by the Holy Spirit how utterly helpless I am before Him. How much greater his mercy is known to me as I'm willing to see my sin. Being in the word and being reminded over and over and over again of the gospel, my gratefulness for the cross increases. My affections for this sinful, one, sinless one soars. Now if I do not understand why I'm in the word, I may, not, I may not be anxious to get alone with the Lord, to be quiet before him because I know what's coming. My sin is going to be revealed. If I focus only on that part, though, I can quickly become discouraged. The gospel is good news for us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's from Ephesians 2.4. Such great reminders. We do not deserve this great mercy, but he loved us, and he redeemed us because of his great love. As sin becomes bitter to me, Christ becomes sweeter and sweeter to me. Discipline 1 reads, She prayerfully shepherds her heart towards God through the word of God, and in particular the gospel. Prayerfully. Our hearts are not inclined to pursue God or to get into his word, to engage with the God of the word. We ask God to soften our hearts before we begin, allowing us to know him more intimately. Jacob gave us a great reminder last week. Our hearts have been changed by God if we have come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Now it's about guarding that heart that has already been changed. And it's not just about keeping sin out, but allowing God in. Allowing God to search my heart, to have his eyes reveal sin, to see what's there. Again, it's about bringing my deceitful, greedy, selfish heart into full contact with the Word of God, who is my only hope in battling that remaining presence of sin. We rejoice in this mercy and grace. And moving on to discipline two, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and for the gospel. Rehearsing the gospel realities, the gospel truths, In answer to our own sinfulness, prepares and readied us to lay down our lives for those in our homes and those God brings. The gospel compels me to love and to serve others, knowing my own need for my Savior. Remember, we're sinners living with sinners. Our hearts are the same in that we are in constant need of Him. We get off track in our thinking, thinking we deserve this or that or to be treated this way or that way by others. In our homes, we have the privilege to help one another bring our thoughts back to captivity, to bring them back into alignment with God's Word. It's in conversations and prayers, directed to love as we have been loved. We we often remind ourselves in our home, when did Christ die for you? You've been mistreated. When did Christ die for you? That's right. He died when you were yet a sinner. So because of this truth... This undeserved gift, we can now love this person who has wronged us too. The gospel compels us to lay down our lives, oh, to grow in such grace. And that's from, again, Romans 5, 8, reminding us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us because of his great love. It happens often that I'm engaged with the the Lord early in the morning, and either I soon sin after or I'm sinned against. What do I do? I quickly lose sight of the gospel. Well, the Holy Spirit may call back to mind something I've um, read in the Word in the morning, or um, by His grace be reminded of a gospel truth that would apply here, or I may have to just yell, stop in my mind, and go back to the Word. I'm training myself to renew my mind with His Word. And then discipline three, ministry. Now with a heart for God and the gospel, and fulfilling her ministry within her household, She steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. I'm thankful this isn't about something I have to do or something I must do, but an overflow of discipline one and two. Remember, it's all happening at the same time. This ministry to others is God's work. I'm simply an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. As I recognize my utter dependence on God, I no longer have to have it all together before I can encourage other women to shepherd their hearts toward our very kind and merciful father we are all beggars pointing one another to the bread of life right we're iron sharpening iron ministry is not knowing about what to do to help one another but to know and to know deeply the one who is the source of all that we all need our lives are very different in the what god uses to refine us and to make us into the image of his son It is easy to become discouraged in life because we lose perspective so quickly. Our eyes must constantly be redirected to the cross. It is important that we spur one another on toward love and good deeds, being reminded of the great love he has. I'm thankful God has given us one another to remind each other of those gospel realities and those gospel truths. I need to be reminded over and over. We sang a song on Sunday, O Great God, and as I sang verse 3, I thought of our disciplines. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from evils that I face. You are worthy to be praised with every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven. That is why we long to know the Savior, to shepherd our hearts well and to minister to others in our household, in those in their church because he is worthy to be praised may our lives be a living epistle, a living letter to the world of this great God of heaven thanks for
1: letting me share now you know why we asked her to share right thank you so much I have the privilege of being sharpened by my dear friend quite often. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you. You are worthy. Oh, our great God. Thank you for your mercy. When we were yet sinners, you saved us. You love us. It's your kindness that brings us to repentance. You've redeemed us. God, I... Need your help now. We're we're so inadequate without your help. So God, I ask that you would help us, help me. Even now, I ask Lord to speak um, your truth. Help these ladies, Lord, to hear. I pray that we would all be encouraged, be convicted, where your Spirit convicts us. I pray that we would all um, leave here transformed even more to the image of your Son by your spirit Lord I lift up the kids and the diligent servants and, and wellspring kids and pray Lord that you would do a mighty work in all of their hearts that they too would leave here changed God we pray for our sister Chris that she's getting rest this morning um, much needed rest that she rests physically and that she rests spiritually in you um, acknowledging that you are her comforter and her only hope. You're our only hope. So God, I pray that we would be confident in you and you alone and not anything that the world, world's deceiving message would send to us. Thank you for your mercy on us. And God, be glorified as we worship you now through opening up your word. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, here we go. I think that you probably should fasten up because <laughs> we have a lot to share. Some of you that were here um, last year heard heard um, the same message. It's going to be a little bit different, um, but I hope that um, you're not you're not um, distracted. By the first part of it, because I just feel like it's so important to kind of share with you some things, um, and we're, so we're not going to open up his word immediately, which I know you guys love to do. So, But anyways, I'm going to start off by asking you a couple of questions this morning. How many of you have given much thought, or a lot of thought, to the topic of biblical womanhood? You know, what the Bible says about your femininity, about your identity as a woman. That word femininity is one that we really don't hear very often anymore, do we? But Elizabeth Elliot says this, and I just love it. It's so good. She says, femininity is not a curse. You and I, if we are women, have the gift of femininity. And it's a divine gift to be accepted with both hands and to thank God for. Because remember, it was his idea. It was his idea. And so this morning we're going to look at scripture and we're going to try to dig in there and we're going to find out what God has to say about us as women. But I have another question for you. Do you think that some, some, if not much of what we believe about our womanhood and our femininity is based on culture and not based on scripture? I certainly remember before God saved me and even after God saved me, ugh, I had so much to unlearn. And by God's mercy still teaching me so much of this. But I remember being so offended when I would hear things like a woman's place is in the home. And oh, you know, and I know that their motive probably was to offend me, right? But it would just I felt like that was degrading and demeaning, even though I even want, really wanted to be in the home, but I didn't want anybody telling me that. Or you throw like a girl. I'd be like, "Wait a minute, but you know what? I am a girl. Why does that defend, Why does that offend us? We're girls, right? So what it was for me, it was a restless rebellion. <clears throat> In my heart. There are so many conflicting voices in our culture today, ladies. And one of the loudest voices over the last 50 years has been that of feminism. So we're going to take an extra amount of time this morning and and we're going to look back in history and we're going to talk about where we find ourselves in our culture today. At least the little bit that I've learned. There's so much I don't know. But we're going to look at that, and then we're going to see what God's Word says about it. So we'll start off with asking the question, what is feminism? Well, feminism started out being this radical movement. It was a radical movement about women's rights. And, you know, we enjoy the right to vote, even because of that, and I'm thankful for the privilege. It's a privilege to vote. It's not my right, it's a privilege to vote. But fiz- feminism, though it, though in the beginning it started out being about a lot of legal rights, it grew and it developed into something much, much more than that. It's a distinct worldview with its own ideologies and values and ways of thinking. The feminist era was a period of time where feminist ideas were being developed and promoted and accepted into our culture. And even among the feminists and their agendas, there wasn't really one consensus regarding their definition of feminism or their meaning of womanhood. It was all over the board, and it's so hard to define. I can't define it. I tried to find a definition. I really can't define what it is. But some of it... I'll try. There's what's called the Mommy Wars, and they've been going on for years regarding the uh, woman's right to um, have a career outside of the home and raise children inside of the home, and there's, there was much debate over that, and we don't even really hear that much about that anymore. It's, there's some. Radical feminists would argue that an educated woman's place was in the workforce period. There were pro-abortion feminists whose campaign was for a woman's right to take the life of her unborn baby. Um, And that was their agenda. And there were pro-life feminists as well, totally opposed to abortion, while subscribing to many other ideas of feminism. The most important thing to understand, though, is this. It was about women's rights. It was about equality in all forms. That's what they were after, rights and equality. It was about freedom and choice. And to be whoever you wanted to be and do whatever you wanted to do, the cultural message in all its forms, and still is rights, equality, self-sufficiency. How many of you in this room have heard the term male chauvinist pigs? Male chauvinist pigs. Some of you young ones probably don't. I don't know. But um, that was really popular, (laughs) a popular statement that I even used. During that time. It was um, when women's attitudes were started. I can open my own door. Thank you very much. And I can buy my own dinner on a date. I can support myself. You know, those kinds of attitudes. Songs like, I am woman, hear me roar. Remember that? And (laughs) R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Remember those songs? Well, um, it's kind of women's anthems, and, and, and it really still is. And women, you know, they're better and they're stronger than men. And, and it was a time when degrading men became funny and acceptable. Their mantra was that no one, especially men, even in marriage, have the right to tell women what to do or who to be leaving them trust in no other authority other than their own perceived truths. It was a whole mindset of personal authority instead of bowing before the authority of God. Well, over the past decade or so, we've been transitioning from that era, that feminist era, into what some call a post-feminine era. What's the difference? Well, in the feminist era feminist ideas were being developed and now they're fully formed their agenda and philosophies were pushed by professors and teachers and philosophers and now they're just embraced and they're believed by mostly everyone they've been integrated into our thinking the ideas were radical and now they're just commonplace We don't even recognize what my grandma would have considered a radical feminist view. I lived with my grandma, and I remember watching on TV when women burned their bras, and I remember her just being
0: appalled at that,
1: which we should be, right? In the feminist era, feminist ideas were identifiable. And now they're just indistinguishable from the mainstream thought. Feminism as a movement seems to be pretty much over as a movement because there's really not a movement anymore because it was so su- successful. Because it was so successful, it's transitioned into being the current mindset and belief of so many in our culture. It's been so mainstreamed into our society that it's just normal. It's the way we think. It's 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 what we see when we shop. It's It's what... We watch on TV and in movies. That's what they, the movies and entertainment tell us we should be like. It's in our books. It's in our education, educational system. It's in the Girl Scouts of America. <laughs> I mean, real, girl power. You just Google girl power. I Google girl power. See what you come... No, don't even do it. Don't even waste your time. One author said this. Feminism has so seeped into our culture and mindset, it's like intravenous drugs into the veins of an unconscious patient. The question asked to women by one of the leaders of the feminist era was, what is it that will bring joy, or will bring women joy and fulfillment? What is it that will bring her purpose and meaning of life? And their answer Women bought into the lie, hook, line, and sinker, that feminism, or whatever you want to call it today, it'll bring them what they want and what they think they deserve. Well, all of this demanding of rights, it was supposed to bring women greater fulfillment and freedom and liberation. It was supposed to make women feel better about themselves. But instead, we see just the opposite. Even the New York Times had an article that said, these women do not feel better about themselves. They aren't happier, they're disordered, they're confused, and they lack a sense of vision and purpose for their lives. And we know, we know, that what they are seeking can only be filled by the transforming power of the gospel, when we humbly acknowledge the truth of the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus and his finished work on, work on the cross and all the realities that the uh, of the gospel, and then live according to God's design. That's true joy. Because that yearning and longing for something more It's not going to be filled with anything else. It can't be filled by the formula that our culture's been given by feminism. So, where do we find ourselves today in in our culture? Pretty confused. Our culture's confused. Our upcoming post feminist generation has little or no understanding of God's design for men and women. And many reject completely his plan for gender. One of the most recent and devastating debates is over the God-given differences between men and women. In our culture today, many men, they're not being taught, they're not being raised to understand what it means to be a man. Many women are not being taught or raised to understand what it means to be a woman. And it's devastating. It has devastating effects on our culture and on our families as a society. Many women and men are despising, or many women, I would say, despising their femininity and who God created them to be. There's a whole lot of talk about gender confusion, gender identity, gender neutrality. And I I just want to say there's a medical condition. About 1% of babies are born with with, with a, a disorder, and I'm not talking about that, that's, a, that's, a, that's um, a physical illness, that's not what I'm talking about at all, I'm talking about rebelliousness, but we're seeing even more of what's going on, it's, 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 what's been going on for years, men and women believe that they were born with wrong body parts. Females want to be males. Males want to be females. They want to have surgeries. Parents are allowing children to have surgeries and take hormone replacement drugs. I've been reading quite a few blogs to prepare for this and just to kind of see. And it's so sad to see the hopelessness and despair and rebellion. And we know that we don't need new body parts. We know we need new hearts. They need new hearts just like we needed new hearts. Just like I needed a new heart. I needed a, I needed a new heart. I was completely rebellious as well. But God in his mercy gave me, gave us new a new heart. And, and, and it changed everything. So let's keep that in mind as we think about this. Just keep that in mind. Okay. So in their push to be whatever gender they decide they want to be, there are those who don't want to be recognized as a gender at all it's out there ladies and it's coming full full steam ahead they don't want to be recognized as gender at all they want to be gender neutral to be recognized as a human being rather than a he or a she okay there's even talk about coming up with a gender neutral pronoun in order to identify there's a, I, I don't know if, if you heard last year, but there was a baby um, born to parents in Canada who um, decided not to tell anybody the gender of their baby, not the little brother or anyone to, in order to allow the child to decide what he or she want, wants to be when, when he can decide that. I read another blog on how um, a mom is writing on how to raise gender-neutral children. There's so much I'm not even going to fill your minds with. Maybe some of you read about a taxpayer-funded preschool in Sweden. This school is operating under the theory that by eliminating any reference to gender, the students won't fall prey to the stereotyping of gender roles. They say that there are no boys and no girls in this school. They call each other friends. Egalia, the school's name, gives them a fantastic opportunity to be who they want to be. They're not allowed to use the pronouns him or her. They're not allowed to. They they've replaced the gender label with a made-up word, a made-up word. It doesn't even exist in the Swedish language. There are no gender promoting fairy tale books, no Snow White, no Cinderella, but they favor books featuring gay and lesbian couples and single parents. There's a waiting list for this school. And only one family's dropped out. Last year, we told you that the words mother and father were removed from U.S. passport applications for children and replaced with gender neutral terminology, parent one and parent two. Stating that with the changes in medical science and reproductive technology, we're confronting situations now that we would not have anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. All of this is denying our creator's perfect design. The secular world is now deeply committed to this idea of gender neutrality. They want a world free from any concern for gender, a world where masculinity and femininity are erased, not just blurred, but erased as old-fashioned ideas. Or at least the categories of male and female are just negotiable. Their argument is that we must be free. We have the right to make the adjustments and alterations and transformations in gender and gender relationships that we desire. And all of this is denying the Creator. Nothing of who God is in Scripture is revealed by such a worldly, anti-God view. This is a full-on attack against the creator who created them in his own image. Male and female, he created them. John Piper and Wayne Grudem write this, The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of maleness and femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is at a great loss. It's taken a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today's epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress, and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. Now, this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness has taken us. This is what sin does to us. This is all about someone exalting self over what the rest of a culture has understood for thousands of years. But mostly what it is is an exaltation of self against God. Some of the things that I'm saying are so not politically correct. They're not. Now <clears throat> that's okay. It should come as no huge surprise to any of us that the secular world's confused <coughs> and completely distorted about the identity and calling of women. But what's worse is to the extent in world that the worldly philosophy and cultures influenced even the un- evangelical world. It's in the air we breathe We may not even know we've adopted some of these feminist values, but I can almost guarantee you that none of us in this room is exempt from being affected by it. One author says scores of evangelical women are functional feminists because the world's paradigm for womanhood is the only one they've ever heard. And this is so true because feminism ideals are just not out there in the world. Because God in his grace, he saves people. He saves us out of the culture, and he gives us new hearts, and he brings us into the church. And we bring all of that, some of that, you know, in with us. And so, of course, it's in the church. Of course, it's going to be there. I brought it in. But the church, rather than holding up the word of God and exalting God's design for men and women, has, in many cases, let the ideologies into its teaching. And so we have gender-neutral Bibles, um, women ministers and pastors, gay clergy, and so on. And because of all of this, because of all of this, we need to know, we need to know, and we need to humbly speak and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about biblical womanhood without fear even though we may be persecuted. We may be persecuted for speaking truth. We want to embrace this gift of femininity given to us by God. So we're going to survey scripture now. <laughs> Finally, right? And we're going to see what God doing two things throughout his word that cannot be separated. You can, you can see this on your out, outline now. Where um we see that um There is spiritual equality, and we're going to see that, and then we're going to see role differentiation, the distinctions and differences between roles of men and women. Men and women are spiritually equal before God, okay, and then, um, I lost my place. Oh, and we have differing roles in our families and in the church. Spiritually equal before God, and we have different roles. So, on your outline, you're going to see we've laid it out for you, how we've laid it out for you this morning. We're going to see our spiritual equality and our role differentiation in three segments. We're going to see it in the Old Testament, number one, and then we're going to see it um, in Jesus' treatment of women, and then we're going to go back and we're going to look at some more New Testament scripture. But these two biblical realities. Um, Spiritual equality and role differentiation are inseparable. It's called the complementarian view because the role of men and women, they complement one another. And we embrace this complementarian view because God's revealed it in Scripture to be this way. And we embrace this view because of the stunning revelation that biblical manhood and womanhood brings into this dark culture into this dark world. And the amazing joy and contentment for us, not only in the image he's recreated us into its salvation, but also in the different roles, the differently divinely assigned roles he's given us in which his self-giving loves to be displayed. Listen, we'll find freedom and joy not in casting off his design, but embracing it. Our true joy is found when our whole pursuit is in making God more clearly known. We must be women of God who embrace whatever God's given us to make him more visible. So we don't have to look to our culture to find our feminine identity. We don't have to consult our feelings to discover our purpose. There's only one place to go to get our own thoughts straightened out about what it means to be a woman. And that's God and his word. He made women. Elizabeth Elliot said this, In order to learn what it means to be a woman, we must start with the one who made her. Let's turn to Genesis 1. Genesis 1.26 says, um, And we're going we're starting in spiritual equality from the very beginning. We see scripture that men and women are equally created in the image of God. He says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and then let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them male and female he he created them this is his design what does God mean or what does it mean to be created in the image of God Let's see here. I don't know if we have that. Yeah, we do. So you don't need to turn there. Chapter 1 of Colossians says um, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we look to Jesus to see what that image is. And what did it look like for Jesus to bear the image of God? We have it on your outline. Philippians 2.6 says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God as thing to be grasped. He existed in the form of God. And form is a similar word to image. So he existed in the image of God. You see the unity there? And then he didn't regard that unity, that equality with God, as something to be grasped after. But verse 7 says, he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus did not promote himself. He didn't fight for his rights. But rather, here in verse 7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. Being in the form of God led him to take on the form of a slave. The image of God is that of serving. Not grasping for yourself, your ideas, your self-promotion, but by humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. And Jesus confirmed this when when he says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but rather he says what in Mark 10? He came to what? He came to serve. Checking to see if you're there. The Son of Man, he came to serve. And how did he serve? He gave his life. He gave his life away. And you have a couple more references there on your outlines. Uh, 2 Corinthians four four and Hebrews 1.3. So that's the image in which men and women were created. To bear this kind of self-giving love in Christ. However, men and women have also been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. That's on your outline. After man was created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about God's majesty and his awesome power and his perfect design and abundance. We can't even grasp the power of God to create a universe. Right? Out of nothing. We, we, We can't even relate to humanity that's so perfectly innocent. But unfortunately, we can relate to Genesis chapter 3. So, we go from His majesty and wonder in chapters 1 and 2 to a very familiar territory. The serpent came. Eve was attacked at the very image of God in her. He slandered God. Eve's heart was enticed. She became a self-grasper, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. And that's what we do when we live for ourselves. And when Eve sinned, it all but destroyed his image. And then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And that's what we've all been plagued with ever since. Men and women are equally impacted and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power, and both equally unable to change on their own, their sinful condition, both equally in need of salvation. One is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal. But there are differences in our roles. You see, you can turn to Genesis 2 18, um, and that's on your outline there under role differentiation, where God shows us his purpose in creating woman. In verse 18, He says, And the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him and out of the ground. The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. It was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And God created man for a particular task and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete. Without someone to complement him in fulfilling the task and taking dominion over the earth, so he, God created Eve. Adam didn't need another Adam, right? He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. So right here, we already see the differing roles before the fall. Even the order in which they were created is linked to different roles, but it doesn't affect our spiritual equality. And when we use that word equality, I'm not talking about that equal rights. Okay, I'm, I, we're sinners equally in need of salvation, and we equally share in the blood of Christ, and uh, the blood of Christ, and we are equally called to be used in His kingdom in differing roles. So God created man first, and then the woman. He had an order in mind when He created, and it's the order that Paul will repeatedly appeal to in the New Testament. And I think that's on your outline as well. Um, you don't need to go there, but First Corinthians eleven three says, "I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is head of woman, and God's the head of Christ." So you see the order there. There's order. Okay, so God always established that men would be in leadership roles right from the very beginning. Even in Israel, men were responsible for the national and religious leadership. From the garden to the final prophets. There's Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the rest of the kings and priesthoods in Israel. Prophets of the nation. And women. They were also active in the religious life of the nation. There's, there's the prophetesses like Miriam and Huldah Hel- um, and Deborah. She was a judge. But what we do not have an account for in the Old Testament is significant. There were never any women priests. Or heads of tribes and kings. Okay. So, in that, let's take a look at what sin does, though. That's the next point on your outline, I hope. Oh, yeah. There we are. Sin distorted their God given rules, their God given role differentiation. Do you see that on the bottom of page two? Sin distorted their God-given role differentiation. Sin did not introduce it. Turn back to Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. And and we're not going to take the time to read it this morning. But remember, man and woman, they already had their roles prior to the fall. Their roles were not introduced as punishment after or because of the fall. Our roles are not... God's punishment for sin I've always been taught and believed and even taught last year that part of the distortion of our roles came through God's judgment in Genesis 3:16, where it says that our desire will be for our husband and he'll rule remember that but I'm so thankful for Smed's teaching last summer on Genesis 1 through 3 and if you missed that I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that but he reminded us that the distortion of our roles it doesn't start in Genesis 3.16. When God pronounced the curse to women, it started at the very beginning of chapter 3. We find Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter. He's evil, and he's deceptive, and Eve was caught off guard. He slandered God. Her heart was enticed, and in verse 6, she believed as a lie that if she gave in, she would become wise. And that God was keeping something from her. So she disobeyed God and she ate and she gave it to her husband and he rebelliously ate. And as you read through that, you will already see that. Who is she trusting in? She's trusting in herself. Think about Eve's sin. What was her sin? Just some of it. Independence? Self-grasping? Self-reliance? What was she even doing listening to the serpent? Right? Right? She trusted her own judgment. She's getting out from under God's authority, out from under her husband, seeking to satisfy herself, rebelling against God. Where in that is she fulfilling her role as a helper? How does that in any way acknowledge Adam's leadership over her? How does it honor God's right to define her role? And Adam certainly had his part in that as well in a world previously untouched by sin eve believed the lie that she could trust herself more than she could trust god that's a rejection of the role god gave her and as we live in this mixed condition thankfully this side of the cross this is very familiar to us as well right how do we see that how do we see that in our own hearts just like just like eve you know we may independently step out from under our husband's protection married or to seek control you know now we do it by taking charge seeking to control master exert our own will step outside of God's design and it can show up in in various ways for some of us trying to control maybe kind of like a really quiet smoldering silent treatment sometimes that hostility can take on an attitude of coldness. Nobody can relate to that, right? <laughs> or indifference. You know, just, I give up. I don't even care anymore. With others, it's a shouting hostility. is isn't much of a secret to anybody, especially those in your household. For some of us, we have such a way of bulldozing right over our husbands and others with our words, Right? I certainly can relate to that. Sin is what distorts our God-given differentiation of roles. This is what sin does. You know why God gave us roles? Because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through the distortion or through undoing the roles that God has for us. When Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. They forded. They forfeited the life of the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth, child rearing. There's also death, and most importantly, there's separation from God. Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin. But we are certainly no different. Ladies, our problem is not men or equal rights, like the world would have us think. Our problem is is sin. Sin warps everything. James tells us that sin is the reason for jealousy and selfish ambition and disorder and every vile practice that characterizes false wisdom. Sin is the reason we need a Savior. So now we're going to look at how Jesus emphasizes the exact same thing. There's a consistent pattern. We're on number two in your outline, where Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's Spiritual equality with man in the midst of a woman demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jew- Jewish culture. In that culture, you guys have it? Okay. In that culture, women were possession, not even worth teaching the Torah to. Actually, they would burn the Torah rather than teach it to a woman. They claim that by a woman's nature, They could not understand spiritual or theological truth. Men in Jesus' day normally wouldn't even allow, um, or they wouldn't count change into a woman's hand for fear of physical contact. Jesus, though, he dramatically countered this godless view of women. The references are here on your outline, and you can look them up later. But Jesus uses illustrations, that first point there. He uses illustrations and images familiar and useful for women. He revealed himself as Messiah to women in John four and Luke ten while Martha is busy in the kitchen. What was Jesus doing? He was teaching Mary, which was so countercultural in that day. Jesus taught touched women, he allowed women to touch him. Jesus allowed women, women to travel with him and his disciples, which was unprecedented. In John twenty, Jesus revealed himself to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead, sending her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not even allowing women to witness because believed they were liars. In Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and he showed them respect in ways they had never known in their culture. He didn't demean women. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. And Jesus, at the same time, though, he he did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. He didn't. What he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any woman to be among the twelve. That would have been the perfect time to do that. The prime opportunity to change what God so far had revealed in the Old Testament. A prime time to establish a change for women's roles. But he didn't. Why didn't he choose women's, women disciples? Well, because he affirms and he continues God's view and pattern for the role of women Revealed in the Old Testament. And that leads us to number three on your outline, the rest of the New Testament. In Galatians 3.28, it says that there's there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another. And there's some examples there in your outline, like Priscilla and his wife Aquila, they ministered together. In Philippians 4, there's Odi and 2K. We also see that both men and women receive spiritual gifts. In in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, it says that the wife is the fellow heir, fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are different differences in roles. You know, it's easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. And we love that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That men and women, they have an equal need for Jesus. We have an equal cleansing in his blood. But ladies, the gospel is every bit as much on display in the different roles described for us, for men and women in the New Testament. The Lord's designed for us different roles in order that we participate together in displaying the gospel. Remember what we see in his words, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It's not inspired by the culture of that day. You see references on your outline where the different roles and responsibilities for men and women are described. For leadership roles of the church. Actually, we're just going to summarize this. The elders and the deacons are, we, I am going to summarize. The elders and deacons are offices filled by men. The primarily broader teaching responsibility rests on the men. This is God's design for displaying the love of Christ for his church. Men have this incredible responsibility to display Christ, his loving servant leadership toward the body. And women have the role and privilege that God's given us. Um, it's about displaying the supportive and submissive character of the church in her relationship to our Savior. We respond. We follow the lead of our elders and deacons. So even when we're ministering one woman to another or with children... Whatever we're doing, preparing meals, discipling alongside our husbands, all of these ministries are ultimately overseen by men. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. And I I love that. Actually, Scott's the elder uh, directly over Wellspring. And there's protection there. See, the elders, they love the Lord. They love His church. They take their role seriously. And in that, they love and care for us. We need their shepherding. We need their leadership. And it's so comforting to know that we have it. I can't imagine doing this ministry. I wouldn't do this ministry without it. When When scripture limits the scope in which we are to use our gifts, again, it's because God's design is to display his relationship with his people through it, through the limitation. It's all about how he displays his love and care and protection and leadership for his people. And how his people trust him how we can trust Him, and we can follow His lead. And in marriage, we find the same principle at work. Husbands, they have this mind-boggling responsibility, this calling to love their wives. Are you lovable, wives? Are you helping them in that? I just have to ask. This responsibility to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, just think about that. How did Christ love His church? He gave. He gave Himself to purchase us for Himself. So if you're married, you can display your trusting submission to your Savior by submitting to your husband. We get to serve, and we get to give ourselves away in that. And if you're not married, you have the privilege to display your trusting submission to the Lord by submitting to the authorities that God has over you, whether it's parents, your boss, elders in your church. See, when men and women fulfill fulfill their God-given roles, And we as women live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders and under our husband. The word's honored and the gospel's on display. We actually demonstrate to one another and to a watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. Is that exciting or not? Isn't that great? This is why we embrace who God's created us to be. It's why we embrace biblical womanhood. Because God has something to reveal about himself to us and to the world through not only our spiritual equality, but also through our different roles. Okay, so how do the different roles reveal our great God? Well, first of all, the members of the Godhead, they have different roles, right? Along with their divine equality. Hey, think about this. Each of the three members of the Godhead reveal the image of God to be the self-giving love. Each of the three manifest the self-giving love toward one another. The, the, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. He gives Himself over to the Father's will to redeem His people. The Spirit, He gives of Himself to reveal the Son to His people. And both recreated, man and woman, equally possess this image within But that image is enhanced. It's magnified and it's glorified, not by men and women having the exact same roles. The son takes on a different role from the father without losing any of the self-giving love, without losing any deity. So do you get that? To diminish any one of our unique roles, it would cause us to miss something of God and who he is. So the same is true with the different roles given to us uh, given to men, given to women, the roles given to married women and, and given to single women, because our roles are unique privileges from God. And this is just kind of laying the groundwork, just foundational. For the next couple of weeks, we're gonna, Sarah's gonna come in and teach on on marriage and and singleness, and so we'll develop that even more. But these roles, they're they're to reveal something more of who God is and what His image is within us. So if we seek to erase that, if we seek to erase these roles, whether we're married or not, then then we make the image of God within us less visible. We're image bearers of the living God. And we're equal before the cross, but with different, divinely assigned roles. And when male and female live and work together as God intended, it's beautiful. There's, there's, There's your joy and your satisfaction. Okay, so let's grow and encourage one another to embrace and love the God-given roles for us because God will best be seen within us, within our marriages, within our families, within our church as we're obedient to him in those roles he's given us. And because it exalts God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. To not live up to the roles that God's given us as men and women or to cross roll boundaries that God has for us is to cloud that visibility in and through us. And it's to distort a message to a watching world. His created order is beautiful. God took delight in it. What did he say? He said it's good. I'm skipping ahead because we are way behind. I want to say this. Because these are such critical images, is it any wonder that they're at the center of such a strong battle today? We shouldn't be surprised that Satan wants to wage war. Our flesh wants to wage war. Our culture wants to wage war. It's God that determined how we best glorify him. So we need to look at God's heart, his heart for male, his heart for female, his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and just bow and say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you and I'll humbly bring myself in line with that and if we're not grounding our lives and grounding our thinking if we're not shepherding our hearts to know this to know how the role, how our roles function within the home and the church and within the culture then sooner or later we'll be vulnerable in our homes in our churches and in our culture to the very same kinds of thinking that's turned the secular world upside down theology matters, we need to take this seriously because when we choose to live apart from his design we distort the gospel picture we miss the entire point of being a woman every time I value my independence and my own life plans my opinions over what would bring God glory in displaying the gospel, it's rebellion against God and the gospel who he created me to be And apart from the gospel, this just isn't even going to make sense, right? It's just not going to make sense. But it's our motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan for us. Scripture is full, and we'll continue through this, of what it means to be a godly woman in Titus 2 and in 1 Peter. But we're called to teach the younger women. ladies. our children need to hear what it means to be a man, Biblically, and what it means to be a woman biblically. There's loud competing competing voices to our children. Sexuality, sensuality is being sold and marketed to them like crazy. First Timothy two nine says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modesty, and being discreet. We need to live modestly, discreetly. And I have a whole lot on that, and I just can't even share it, so God didn't want me to at this point, that we can love our brothers in that, and that. we can talk about it later. But I'll end with this: without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we'll always have to guard against our self-willed, feminist-like mindsets in our own hearts. And I just hope after today you'll ask, where is that kind of thinking? You know, like a feminist mindset? Where is that seeped into my own heart? And I hope you leave this morning with a renewed passion to embrace God's design for you as women because there's so much at stake. I hope you leave with a new passion to take up the call and to teach the next generation God's design for our femininity out of displaying and glorifying him and not gratifying ourselves. Father, thank you that you have clearly designed how you want us to live in this lost world. Help us to do that, to display your gospel so so many will be saved and you will be glorified. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.